Our Father, we again come. We come before the throne of grace. Thank you for inviting us to come freely, willingly, and even boldly, and we do so. Uh, offering up our thanksgivings, Father, our thanksgivings to you for all things, for you doeth all things well, and you're working all things uh, according to your plan and for our good. What an amazing promise that is. So thank you, Father, and thank you for drawing us, uh, each one. Thank you for giving us hope for intersecting with us in our lives, wherever we may have been for some many years ago, others more recently, but uh, in any case, Father, intersecting with us. For apart from that, we know where we would be today. We'd be where so many are uh, today, uh, lost and without hope in this world and uh, with an eternal prospect that they don't even comprehend uh, the, the least of. So, Father, I just uh, pray that their sense of foreboding, which I believe they do have, uh, it goes with hopelessness. I pray that that might guide and lead them to truth and that they might be receptive to those that share it with them. Father, I, I thank you for our nation and for its founding, its constitutional framework uh, designed to provide uh, a protection on liberties that only you, Father, can can truly give. So I, I pray that our nation would be preserved, even though the enemy is very active in our day and the times are dark indeed. And uh, those that uh, hate truth and, and hate you and our Lord Jesus and hate us uh, are so visible. Father, I pray for our president that you encourage him, keep him safe, and guide and direct and, and provide success in the midst of such a broken political environment. I pray, Father, that those that uh, would dare to stand for truth would be encouraged, that they'd be protected, that they'd see fruit for their labors. I pray, Father, if it would be your will and purpose for this nation, which it may not, we don't know, but if it is, of course, we just continue to cry out that you will deliver us from the evil one. So, Father, we, we look forward now to this time to share. Uh, there are many other needs, but you know them, and our, our cries to you, Father, and our requests are not enough. We're thankful the Holy Spirit continues on, and he will not be silenced, and you always hear his cries. And we thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. We have, again, an opportunity. I like to call it a privilege. That's really what it is. To look into Paul's letter to the Philippians and how Paul's own witness is used there. The Holy Spirit, remember, is behind the writing of these letters. This is scripture given, breathed out by God, and uh, the Lord chose to use the Apostle Paul as a witness, a testifier, as it were, one who has much to say about how God is working under grace. And, and he says it so boldly here in this letter, amongst others. And um, today what I'd like us to consider, really we're con continuing on from where we've been already for a while, 
really the whole letter is about the same subject, basically, <clears throat> and the various dimensions of that. The greatest subject <laughs> that we could possibly consider uh, as uh, God's dear children, as members of a heavenly calling. And that that is the highest calling of all, the highest calling of all. Now, we might have thought, and I'm sure we often do, that the highest calling of all is, is faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it ends there. Once we're saved, everything's secured, everything's determined. Our lives are now going to be uh, working for the best in every way. And there's no reason to be concerned about it. And we can just get on with life. Now, some do think that way. But uh, that's not the way the Apostle Paul saw it. He believed and taught that uh, God has much to do in our lives today. Once having been saved, the issue is living in newness of life. And that involves the renewing of our minds. And so that's uh, what Paul is writing about here in this letter. Um, now, one of the larger implications of all that is that since the law has been set aside we're now being governed in a different way by the lord god his work is through the abundance of grace grace being shed abroad in our hearts right the abundance of grace has its work in us and that's uh, what provides us with certain privileges and opportunities to live far above the affairs of this world and to live a life that's radically different. So there are radical implications of not any longer being under law, but rather under grace. It's hard to find a more significant teaching in Paul's letters than this, at least from the practical side of what the life should be for all of us, uh, this uh, issue of the law is right in the center of that, right? Um, I'll read again these these several verses here. Today in Philippians 3, uh, starting in verse 8, Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss. What, what Paul is saying is that he came to understand through the teaching of the Lord Jesus from heaven. Remember, he was taught from heaven by the Lord Jesus, not here on the earth, the way the 12 apostles were, was taught from heaven. Uh, and uh, he learned something really critical for all of us to learn as well. And that's that so much must be cast aside as refuse if we're to live this life under grace. So much of what we were before, what we had accomplished in this world, what we might accomplish using our uh, human capabilities such as they are, which may be very, very great or maybe not. It's a different person to person, right? But we should be willing, as Paul was, as he says here in Philippians 3, 8, to count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of law, but that which is through the faith of 
Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Those verses ought to be written in our hearts by now. I trust that they will be, if not yet, that they will soon be, that our lives may be transformed the way the Apostle Paul was hoping. Remember, he did this for your sakes and mine, right? And, of course, to gain the prize, as we'll see today as we go on a little bit further here. Um, Now, these words in verse 9 there are right in the center of Paul's teaching. You might wonder why I've put such an emphasis on it. Well, one of the reasons is that it's intended that way because of the way Paul wrote these words here. The word, the word order, the, the structure, everything contributes to a very powerful statement by him concerning how the dynamic of our life now is to be above law. And I think believers do not comprehend this. They're certainly not taught it. So to learn this today means you're in the word, right? You're in the word often and uh, comparing scripture with scripture or how else can you understand the essence of Paul's teaching, right? He says his desires to be found, that means to be discovered. He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ, which will review everything, right? our entire lives, and uh, that which is wood, hay, and stubble will be burned, that which is gold, silver, precious stones, and so forth will endure that fire. Uh, It's going to be quick. It's not going to be like purgatory. The Catholic purgatory has nothing to do with this. That's a uh, seriously damaging doctrine indeed, right? This is talking about Something that's very quick, instantaneous, okay? Um, And he's talking about what will be discovered at that time. He says, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness. So I could have left it at that, and you might have gone on thinking that legal works uh, are still uh, our, uh, our main and must be our main focus. That's what most teach today uh, in the churches. But he says, not having mine own righteousness, which is of law, but that which is on the contrary, through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Okay, so there's both a, a positional and a practical side to righteousness. We are declared righteous in Christ Jesus already, that's completed. It's not going to be more or less ever. It's just this, always the same. We have his righteousness imputed to our account. But then, practically speaking, I mean, there's all kinds of uh, events in our lives, right, which are, are in the realm of uh, righteousness, right, meaning right action, okay? So uh, how are they... Uh, to be evaluated. He says, I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be evaluated not according to any legal standard, but according to the standard of God. He says only faith in Christ is in the center of all of that. Okay, so this gets right to the heart of motivation. It gets to the heart of, yes, in the heart of the heart, <laughs> it gets into the center of things. What Paul is doing here is 
to speak directly against legalism, okay, in the strongest possible way. Now, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> this uh, strikes to the nerve of many because we easily may have been living along in our lives without understanding this and thinking that somehow we've been such a good person and God is going to judge us uh, well uh, on that basis because we've lived up to a standard. It may not be someone else's standard, but at least it's ours, right? We may have lived up to that well, or maybe the standard of our local group or association or uh, <laughs> For some, it could be as gross as a, uh, a political party. Imagine that, right? I mean, after all, they are they are imposing their standard upon so many today, right? So many live in this area of legal works. In other words, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And if we live up to that standard, then we're acceptable. Uh, if we don't, we're not. Uh, if we live up to that standard, we're righteous. If, if we don't, we're unrighteous. This is the realm of legal works. It's a very religious kind of thing, okay? And churches love to promote legal works and religion. Uh, why? Because it builds the organization very effectively, right? Why does that work so well? Because of guilt. Nobody can live up to a standard, even their own. In fact, the law encourages uh, the flesh to seek its own standard of righteousness, okay? Now, Paul wrote boldly of that in Romans chapter 7. We looked into that already. won't go there again today, but if you want to look at it later, it's verse 8 of Romans chapter 7, okay? Um, there's also the issue of whether our works are living or dead, and <laughs> we looked at that also. We went to Hebrews for that, uh, Many works look very good on the outside, but they're really dead works. And uh, I see in our own political situation, dead works being promoted everywhere. Okay, <laughs> now they're not bad. Some of them are quite good uh, by every, nearly every standard you can imagine. Right. Uh, good works, indeed. But they're done just because of some religious requirement, right? They're done because we have a personal standard we want to live up to, right? We'd fail every time to live up to that standard, or we're very unsure if we have succeeded, right? Uh, but these works do not have any aspect of faith involved in them, perhaps, uh, or any of the empowering of God, right? And therefore, they're just purely religious, those works are dead works, and at the judgment seat of Christ, they'll be burned along with everything else, okay? Why? Because Paul writes very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 what the judgment seat of Christ will be all about and how, at that time, uh, it's the foundation of the works which looms very large and also how the works were built on the foundation, Okay, so uh, our works may not stand because, first of all, they're not even built on the right foundation, right? Uh, 
what foundation are they built on? He says if they're not built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, right? This is in 1 Corinthians 3.11. Other foundation can no man lay than that that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So you you lay your works on a different foundation and uh, they will be ultimately uh, burned up at the judgment seat of Christ, okay? Another thing that's absolutely critical is that uh, that foundation is in its essence based on the grace of God. Previous verse there says so, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation. And another buildeth thereon, but every man take heed how he buildeth. Okay, so Paul laid that foundation of grace. It is that foundation we stand upon and no other really. Uh, no other foundation has an eternal prospect uh, in heaven's glory, right? Except this, right? But he says also, there's a third thing. So not only built on Christ, not only built on grace, right? But also built properly. He says, let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. Okay, and uh, and so that's that's the uh, the teaching there in First Corinthians three. Um, the implication is very strong that for many believers, most works will be burned. Not absolutely everything uh, will go up in smoke. It seems <laughs> because uh, he does also say in. Uh, the next chapter, verse number five, that and also even in chapter three, verse 15, he says, if any man shall be burned, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. OK, and then in chapter four, verse five, the Lord will bring, bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make. And I think that's referring to the improper motives that were hidden away, nobody knew it. The works looked great, but the motives were to justify oneself instead of the Lord, okay? Both, we'll both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. He's talking only about believers here, of course, okay? So your works may be burned, but you will be saved. If you're a believer, you will be saved. This is quite clear. No believer is going to be lost and suffer uh, eternal hellfire, even if all of your works somehow or went up in smoke, as it were. That could very easily happen, by the way. Some people are saved and then die immediately afterwards, and all of their works were based on the wrong foundation, right? Nevertheless, they shall be saved. That's the promise of God. Okay, let's uh, now jump into it here. Uh, today, our highest calling is uh, in Christ Jesus. And this is speaking about our life here. What is our life here to be? Um, the outline is, uh, there, there are three things, four key words here. First, our faithful prerogative then the practice, then the prospect, then the privilege. 
Okay, our faithful prerogative, our faithful practice, our faithful prospect, our faithful privilege. Um, <clears throat> the faithful prerogative to start with is what's in verse 11 of chapter 3. I say it's a prerogative. It's not a promise. Uh, Paul is very uncertain whether even he will attain unto this. And uh, Roy, would you read it for us, please, again today? Philippians chapter 3, verse 11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Thank you, Roy. Okay, so again, as always, the context of this whole letter and even the local context here is of great help in understanding what Paul is talking about. And I wish, I wish uh, <laughs> that translations always somehow reflected the exact Greek underlying them, but they don't always. This is one place where King James, which is one of the most reliable translations, doesn't reveal everything that's there in the Greek, right? Because there's a word before the word resurrection. In Greek, you can just keep putting prefixes on and suffixes as long as you want. Anyone who's studied German knows that that language is the same, right? And uh, in this case, it's really an out-resurrection, okay? And this word is never used anywhere else in the Bible, only in this one verse, and it speaks of something very distinctive, right? So there's a distinction between the resurrection of the dead and the out-resurrection of the dead. We talked about this last time a bit. Um, so he's, he's not somehow saying here that he's not sure whether he will attain unto the resurrection of the dead, <laughs> That's surely not the case. He's very much assured of the resurrection of the dead. Far more than that, he's assured of the rapture, right? <laughs> which is very different from the general resurrection, which will occur at the great white throne judgment. There are a number of different resurrections that uh, Scripture uh, teaches for our understanding, right? <clears throat> um, so Paul isn't unsure of being resurrected. How can this possibly be? In fact, the rest of the context makes it very, very clear. He's not talking about that. He's talking about something in this life, living his life in a certain way that at the judgment seat of Christ, he might be distinguished. Okay. Now, every believer, and we just looked at that in 1 Corinthians 3, right? Every believer will have praise of God. But that doesn't mean every believer will be in exactly the same standing, everybody exactly the same, like you all have the same name. There's no personality distinctions. Nothing in eternity reflects what was going on down here. All those that have given themselves for the sake of Christ will look just like everybody else. No, that's not the case at all. <clears throat> there will be differences, right? And as I've said before, uh, scripture doesn't give us details, but I believe the differences are in the degree of reflection of the glory of God. The quality of it and the degree of it will differ, just like the heavenly bodies all differ. In fact, you know, Paul writes about that, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, so there is scriptural support for this, just not a lot of detail. Okay, so... Uh, Paul is writing here about this life and how it will influence eternity for him 
personally and for anyone else who uh, joins into the same manner of living, right? Um, okay, so this was great. Paul's great desire to be counted uh, special at that time because of how he lived this life. And uh, let's get to the second point then, our faithful practice. So if you have the desire Paul did, you will live your life differently. You should. We we all should, right? Do we? Uh, we truly should, okay? Uh, and uh, that uh, great gift of salvation ought to motivate us so strongly to live this life very, very differently. But more than that, the expectation, the expectation for the joy to use other words we've looked at, set before us, okay? Christ was motivated by the joy that was set before him, right? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, okay? We ought to, for the joy set before us, live similarly, right? That would be to let that mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, right? When he left heaven's glory. And that's really what the whole letter to the Philippians is about. It's about applying the teachings of Ephesians practically in this life, okay? <clears throat> okay, so the second point is uh, about our faithful practice. And for this, Paul uses the illustration of running a race. So he says, uh, it is the running of the race which is key now for me, Paul, and for all of you believers, right? Okay, I'd like uh, Linda to uh, read that for us. Would you please read that for us, Linda, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained or am already made perfect, but I press on, if so be that I may lay hold on that for which also I was laid hold on by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself yet to have laid hold, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and stretching forward to the things which are before, I press on towards the goal, onto the prize of the high calling of God, Christ Jesus. So what is Paul uh, saying here? See, remember I said the context, the near context, establishes the meaning in uh, that previous verse, okay? When he talks about the out-resurrection, he immediately talks about this life and how it's to be lived, right? And uh, Paul says, uh, he says, I haven't yet reached this point, right? I haven't reached the goal. The word perfect there means uh, having reached the goal intended by God, right? I haven't quite gotten there yet. There's more to be done here. There's more living to be lived, in other words, right? And it's an uncertainty, there, there, there's some risks involved here. Are we really going to count all things but loss for the uh, sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Uh, and that's a moment-by-moment -moment issue. So verse 13, he said, or verse 12, rather, and there is some something very certain stated there because it's, it's foundational. Everything else is supposed to be based upon it. He says, if that I may apprehend 
in the living of my life, that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. What is a certainty is that we have been captured by our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been apprehended by him. Now the question is, will we grasp onto him as we should? And will that make the difference in our lives? And that's what this is all about. That's what it is all about, right? And notice in verse 13, he says, in the analogy of the race, right? And everyone who's an athlete knows this, right? When you're running the race, and when a horse is running the race, right, it doesn't go looking around to see what's what's back on the side and you know, whether there's a horse coming up uh, a rear. So it's got to look straight ahead. In fact, they put blinders on horses for a reason, right? <laughs> and same with any uh, runner in a race, right? If you go looking behind, you're going to lose more than likely. Unless you're so far ahead already, it doesn't make a difference, right? Uh, so... He says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark. Okay, the mark. <clears throat> well, in a race, of course, there's a, a, a piece of uh, string across the, uh, the path, right? Whoever reaches that is first is the winner, right? Even if you had to put your hand out, Right. Whoever touches it first is the winner and whoever does not touch it first is the loser. OK, there are winners and there are losers in every race. All right. And of course, you have to run the race according to the rules. Otherwise, you're disqualified. All right. So this race analogy, I think, is really great. Uh, but what what we may not have taken to heart are those words there forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Have we really forgotten those things or are they still pulling on our heartstrings? Okay. Paul says he counted all things but loss. Now, he still wrote about them as, as things he had counted for loss, right? So he hadn't, like, they're not completely out of his mind, but they're not pulling him back into his former way of thinking. That's the point of it. Forgetting the things, so you don't look back too much. If you do look back, it's only to remember where you were and now, you know, you're in a new uh, life altogether. Okay? The contrast will be very clear. But if you are always going back into the past and thinking, well, that was really a pretty good thing. Maybe I should reconsider it's never a good thing to look back in that sense uh, so that those things from the past may have, again, power in your life. Okay? No. Uh, Paul had cast them aside completely. I don't think he ever considered them a mark of distinction, as great as he was in those days in a human sense, right, or religious sense. Um, that was all uh, cast aside. And instead, he's looking forward, right? He's looking forward to the goal, to the joy at that day, not having his own righteousness 
that that which is of the faith of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that which was of his own righteousness was based on legal works. Okay, that's what he says. We just spent a lot of time on that. Okay, so this looks forward to the judgment seat of Christ when everything will be evaluated. And there are prizes uh, ahead. Okay, uh, and uh, what I wanted Patty to do was to reread verse 14 for us, this time putting the emphasis on the last words there concerning the mark and the prize. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There will be gold, silver, and precious stones remaining, right, for many at that day. But I do not see them as the prize. <clears throat> I think they'll be swept aside, and now uh, the prize will be provided, uh, and the rewards will be given. Okay? Um, it could be that the gold, silver, and precious stones, as it were, will just continue on into eternity. After all, all of them have the ability to reflect light, right? So according to the analogy, yes, but to reflect the glory of God in various degrees. But the prize and the rewards will be very distinctive person by person, I'm sure. This specific prize that Paul writes about here was the one that motivated him throughout his life, right? Uh, he counted it a great and enduring privilege to assume for himself always what? Well, the mindset of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And how transforming that is. And so that's how he finishes up this section here in Philippians 3. And uh, I'd like Tom to read these verses. Notice that the word mind is used over and over here. Because, again, the subject hasn't really changed from chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. So, Tom, please read that for us. Philippians 3, verses 15, 16, and 17. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk as so, so as ye have us for an ensample. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Okay. He uses the word for mind three times there, right? Um, in each case, uh, uh, in the verbal form, to mind, it means to set your mind, in fact, even to have a habit of thinking in a certain way. He uses the word perfect there. Uh, in this case, it refers to those who are properly minded, but maybe we're not so properly minded yet <laughs> and so we need an adjustment there and that's all reflected in these verses right there are those who need an adjustment in their mindset in their thinking if that were not the case he never would have written this letter the way he did 
Remember, that church was plagued by a problem in the way people were thinking, right? And that's why this word is probably used more than any other word in the letter to the Philippians. I didn't examine the word counts in saying that. It seems to me probably the case, right? Uh, it is uh, the keynote um, concept here in the letter, right? To be properly minded. And Paul um, uses four examples of that. The, the example of Christ, his own example, the example of Timothy, and the example of Epaphroditus. They all had the mindset uh, the, the pattern of thinking that is being exhorted for all of us here. Okay. Okay. So Paul says he's very hopeful. He's very confident that since it's God's will and purpose in the body of Christ to promote this mindset, that he's going to be working in the body to accomplish it. He's quite confident here of that work. But he says we may need adjustment, right? So let us mind things correctly, right? Uh, and in the end, he says, well, uh, here I am as your example. And, uh, now, I don't think Paul sought that. I think it was that uh, Christ made him. He set him forth. He appointed him to be the example for the believers. And that's why he exhibited his grace in certain ways that Paul found very powerful and could repeat to all of us as our example. For example, uh, I mean, for example, yes, uh, when he called out to the Lord for deliverance from the thorn in the flesh, uh, the Lord's response was, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. So Paul, even Paul's adjustment needed, uh, mine needed to be adjusted occasionally, and it surely was there, right? in due time. Um, so Paul here, uh, as he gets to the end of chapter 3, and next time, Lord willing, we'll finish up this chapter, it's a very serious, heavy, weighty exhortation here at the end of this chapter, uh, as much so as any place in any portion of Paul's letters, okay? And he introduces it with this section and simply says in verse 17, Brethren, be followers or imitators together of me and mark them which walk as you have us for an example. Uh, that has strong implications for the people that we uh, establish uh, connections to because they influence us uh, friends and family and those who are not in our family but who are intimately connected to us and us to them have great great influence over us and how we think and how we act and so he says mark them that walk as we do that means examine my life and you determine from your examination how to how to live, right? Because I'm giving you the example, right? And wh what Paul has said elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 and in other places is that he imitates Christ and therefore we can imitate him. So we're not turning aside from Christ as if he couldn't be our example. We are 
letting Paul be the uh, the interpreter, okay, uh, as it were. And I think that's very important because, after all, Paul was taught from Christ in heaven after the resurrection. The 12 apostles were taught by Christ on earth. They had a kingdom perspective, meaning an earthly kingdom. We're all in the heavenly kingdom always, right? But God rules. But uh, they had an earthly prospect, uh, and we have one that's heavenly. We have a heavenly hope, right? Okay, so what Paul is saying is that, and we'll get into this next time, because uh, there are words that are contrasted with one another in Philippians, and those words are perfection on the one hand and perdition on the other. Perfection and perdition. Oh, my. Uh, and we'll look at that next time. Perfection it has to do with the path of grace in our lives. Perdition has to do with the unraveling, the disintegration, the dissolution of one's life. One can be a believer and have his life unraveling. Uh, we all know believers whose lives are not at all uh, what they should be, right? Their lives are unraveling in comparison to uh, that which should be for all of us, right? So mark them, he says, that uh, one should associate with and, and be very, very careful indeed to only accept the influence of them. Otherwise, we may very well be led astray in our walk, in our life. And therefore, at the judgment seat of Christ, there will be much burning, okay? Rather, Paul says, uh, to be found in him, not having our own righteousness, which is of law, but that which of the, is of the faith of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. So, if by any means we ought to be saying, we might attain unto the out-resurrection of the dead. So next time we'll finish up the chapter, Lord willing. I pray that it's been a blessing. We've been quite repetitive, I hope, to good advantage here. And uh, that the scripture has become very, very precious to each of us. Father God, thank you for gathering us and in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the name of and on the basis of the one who is above all and uh, his salvation is unique. Uh, there's no other salvation but through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That uh, teaching is uh, less than popular, let us say, uh, there's much talk about Jesus, not a lot about what his shed blood accomplished uh, regarding sin and sins forever, right? And then his glorious resurrection. Father, thank you that he's working out the abundance of grace today. And the grace of Christ ought to be our intense desire to enjoy you and what you are doing and to have the mind set regarding these things which is appropriate considering the greatness of blessing that you bestowed upon us sinners so father may we be humbled always by that and uh, it, given words of grace and truth uh, to use uh, as part of our testimonies often uh, 
So, Father, we thank you so much for each one here and the gathering that you provided. And may each one be honored, Father, uh, at that judgment seat of Christ yet yet ahead. And uh, may the joy set before us there be sufficient in our hearts to always motivate us. We would ask that in Christ's name and amen. Amen.